Hello again, I'm Miriam Felton. Welcome to Yarn Stories Podcast. Welcome back, fiber folks. This is part two of an in-depth dive into superwash or non-shrink wool processing. You may remember that in part one, my voice was pretty shot. It's still pretty shot. I'm actually recording both (laughs) parts at the same time. So in part one, we were speaking with Cliff Cox, the plant manager at Chargeurs in South Carolina, where they produce shrink-resistant and standard wool sliver for commercial spinning purposes. We also talked a lot about the chlorine hercocet process, which is the major way that non-shrink wool is produced all over the world. Before we recap the chlorine hercocet process, though, let's talk about why wool felts in the first place. Wool is a lot like human hair. If you've ever seen one of those commercials for conditioner, you'll recognize the scaly surface of our hair. Both our hair and a sheep's wool are made of protein manufactured and extruded by our hair follicles. In the case of sheep and curly-haired people, there is also a crimp structure to that hair. But for now, the scales are what's important. The scales are contained in a part of the wool fiber called the cuticle. The way that wool felts is that hot water opens up the scales, the scales move past each other in the agitation, and the wool scales interlock, and one strand of wool at a time rather than having two strands of wool that can slip past each other. This is called a differential friction effect, or DFE. It's differential because the direction of the scales makes a difference in which fibers interlock with each other. This felting process not only removes the stretch that the yarn or fiber naturally had, but it makes the whole garment shrink. I'm sure we've all seen this happen, whether intentionally or unintentionally. So the superwash process is meant to shrink-proof the wool by reducing the size and effectiveness of the wool scales. The chlorine hercocet process, along with some other slightly different processes called the Bazelon process and the Croy process, make up the majority of superwashed wool on the market. The chlorine hercocet process has two main parts. First is the subtractive part. The thing being subtracted is the scales on the wool fiber. So using the chlorination process, whether water or gas-based, the scales on the surface or cuticle of each wool fiber are degraded. They get broken down bit by bit. This process has to be relatively quick or else you risk breaking down the entire wool fiber instead of just the scales. Sometimes the chlorination process is preceded by a treatment of the wool to make it more absorptive or hydrophilic. The chlorine process may also be followed by a step that neutralizes any chlorine left on the wool. The next big step in the chlorine hercocet process is to coat the fibers in a resin. Hercocet, or a hercocet analog, is a cationic man-made polymer, i.e. a petroleum product like a plastic, that is applied to the stripped-down surface of the wool fibers. It fills in the gaps left by the degradation of the scales and smooths out the fiber. Hercocet is what is called a wet-strength resin, which is more frequently used in the paper industry than in the fiber industry. For instance, copy paper, paper towels, and toilet paper contain this wet-strength resin so that they don't fall apart into paper pulp when they hit water. The resin is then cured with an application of heat. This cures the resin and makes the shrink resistance lasting. The big ecological concern over this chlorine hercocet process is the chlorination part that degrades the scales of the wool fiber. Because of the concern over AOX, absorbable organic halides, and their effect on human bodies and reproduction, Chargers uses water-based chlorination process, which water then gets treated in their own wastewater facility before being reused. So Chargers AOX waste never reaches the greater water system. 
We talked with Cliff in detail about that in part one, if you'd like to listen. But plants that are not so strict in their environmental response, or are using chlorine gas to treat the wool instead of a water-based chlorination, have led to a lot of controversy over superwash wool and whether it is sustainable or planet-friendly. There is also a concern with the Hercocet part of the process in some circles. People who are trying to eliminate plastics and all petroleum-based products from their lives are uncomfortable with its use in yarn and fiber. In this episode, we'll cover some other processes used to shrink-treat wool besides the chlorine Hercocet way, as well as finish our conversation with Cliff Cox, plant manager at Chargers. Actually, let's talk for a second about where you're where you're getting uh, wool from. Are you buying it just straight off the wool market, or do you have suppliers like you know ranchers that are that are solely supplying to you? We have a person here who specializes in purchasing the wool. Yeah. Um, the wool comes in some cases directly from a ranch. Awesome. But as you mentioned early on, um, in, in the United States we have small ranches and yes. small flocks of sheep. Yep. If you go to Australia, you might find flocks with you know in the tens of thousands. Yeah. Here is less than that, but many, many, many of them. So a lot of times farmers get together and, and form co-ops. Yeah, they wool pools. Yep. And yes, exactly. And we we buy from from those co-ops and from auction yeah. warehouses across cool. the country. Are you primarily buying merino wool? Um, we buy all types of wool in the United States. Awesome. <clears throat> um, we buy even crossbreds from the Northeast. That yeah. for, you know, heavy, thick fibers that goes into lots of other things yeah. besides next to skin garments, for example, yeah. buffing pads, for example. Oh, cool. Do you know what breed you're using for that? Um, no, I don't know the specific breeds. Okay. It's just we call them crossbreds. Yeah. we uh, In the podcast, we go like deep dive into wool breeds. So, <laughs> uh-huh. so we're nerds okay. about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. So you're getting from multiple sources. You're getting specifically from from some larger many, ranchers, many and then, yeah, yes. That's great. So do you keep for like the the uh, next to skin stuff? Are you keeping solely merino for those projects, or are you um, just basically based on like buying wool based on micron count? No, there's there's yeah no there's other breeds that that we buy um, yeah. that has wool fibers that are are you know, comparable in terms of fiber diameter and and the softness of the fiber, the length and the color of the fiber. Yeah. Awesome. So do you do all all like white wool or are you doing, um, do you sometimes do like over uh, or like production of like a heathered, you know, naturally heathered or blend it yourself. We kind of. we used to process some what we call black wools that yeah. makes makes those beautiful gray I love it. yarns yep. that, that you can't you can't find anything more beautiful. But we don't do that anymore because there's always contamination issues with getting a uh, a black fiber left over from an yep. old lot getting into the new you know like a merino breed. <laughs> yeah, that, that's supposed to be white. And as long as that was going into you know formal colors like navy and, and black, it might be okay. But yeah. when it goes into pastel colors, you can't. You can you, you can't, can't dye it. a black fiber to pink, you know. Yep. So we don't do that anymore. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Do you know anything about the hydrophilic silicone softeners? No, not really. We okay. um we have a process that we've been experimenting with called mercerizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, mercerizing is like superwash. Yeah. Um it uh, it does a a little bit more aggressive chlorination. Yeah. And then uses a silicon softener at the end instead of the the resin that we use. Okay. That that silicon softener is softener is is not a traditional softener. It's more like a yes. resin. Yeah. Okay. They call it a softener, but it's more like a resin. We yeah. have been doing some small trials with that. Um, some of that going into military um, testing. 
Yeah. Um, but I don't know a lot of, I don't know the chemistry of that product. Okay. Are you using that mostly for like uh, next to skin stuff? Because it looks, it looks yes. more like silk under a microscope. It's definitely a smoother. Yeah. The, pro- the process of mercerizing, the, the purpose of that mercerizing is to, that it is more aggressive in the beginning stage, so yeah. it makes the scales even even, even less smaller. aggressive, and yeah. it's it it makes the diameter of the fiber even smaller. Yes, that was one of the things. And since it's now smaller, it acts like a like a, a finer know, a, micron, a, a finer a finer wool, so mm-hmm. it gets softer. Okay, that makes sense. Let's talk about wool mercerization for a second. It's called mercerization, but it's totally different than the mercerization of cotton. Cotton mercerization is accomplished with a solution of sodium hydroxide where the fiber is held under tension that plumps the fiber, makes it shiny, and results in a more saturated dye coloration. So the air quote mercerization of wool is called that because it does some similar things. It's nearly the same steps as the chlorine Hercocet process, but as Cliff said, it uses a more aggressive chlorination to remove more of the scales, and then instead of a cationic polymer like Hercocet 125, a silicone, air quotes, softener is applied. It's just a different kind of resin. With the more aggressive removal of scales, and then the addition of the softener, it makes the wool fibers thinner and more silk-like. They slide more easily past each other, and they have an effectively smaller micron count. Is there anything that you guys are working on that you're excited about that you can talk about obviously there's nothing new here except for in the in the shrink resist world yeah um with that with that mercerization we doing as i just talked about but no no we do the same process we've been doing since 1955 which is scour the wool yeah which gets the you know to gets the grease out of it the grease is the you know the source of lanolin yeah we sell that grease into the lanolin market yes and then we cart it which puts it into sliver form and, mm-hmm. and then we comb it which takes out all the impurities and oh, that's our product called wool top so you're carting and combing carting and combing yeah. interesting are you doing anything particular to get rid of the vegetable matter, or is, is the double carding combing process getting rid of it in general? Vegetable matter, sometimes just abbreviated as VM, is the straw, grasses, cockle burrs, etc. that can get caught up in the sheep's fleece between shearings. Dedicated fiber farmers with smaller flocks can either carefully manage the fields in which their sheep graze, or they can even put coats on the sheep that can expand as their fleeces grow to help keep vegetable matter out of the finished fleece. No, it gets rid of it. It, okay. it gets rid of it. Cool. Because, yep. yeah, like in my reading, there was some there were some processes where people were like like heating it to a particular temperature so that the vegetable matter would turn to ash and then fall out. And, and I was like, that sounds like it might damage the wool. Yeah, the carbonizing yes. um, system that, that they use, which is very, very aggressive on the yeah. wool. But, but that's only for very short fibers that have a huge amount of vegetable matter. Okay. And the short fibers can't be worked by machines in a, in yes. a mechanical way. Okay. They have to do that it in a sense. chemical way. Okay. Carbonizing wool is a four-part process that effectively turns the VM, or vegetable matter, in a fleece into ash so that it sifts out. But it has some drawbacks. Carbonizing starts with immersion in a strong sulfuric acid solution, and then it's baked in a dryer at between 95 and 120 degrees Fahrenheit. So not hot enough to combust the wool, but hot enough to finish off the VM that has been soaked in sulfuric acid. It also can melt the lanolin, and so you end up with a much more stripped-down wool. Then the whole fleece, carbonized VM and all, is passed through rollers that crush the carbonized VM and then a sifter that shakes it out. So the carbonizing treatment leaves the wool acidic, so it then has to be treated with a base element to neutralize the pH before it can continue on in its processing. 
The carbonizing and acidification of the fleece can cause structural damage to the wool fibers. So if it is at all possible to get the vegetable matter out without doing the carbonization, it's definitely preferable to do so. I think we're down to my final question, which is if you could be reincarnated by as any animal, what animal would you be? Oh my goodness, you need to give me a couple of weeks to think about that. But <laughs> anyway, um, right off the top of my head, I, you know, I'd say a beaver. Oh. Um, one, one, I like to, I like to swim. I like the water. Yeah, nice. Uh, number two, I love the swamps. Yeah. Uh, it would be nice to be building something out of wood all the time, right. and and the, and the kicker would be I would be 100% vegan. That's true. Yep. beavers are industrious that's good yes that seems appropriate (laughs) well thank you cliff thanks for talking to me my pleasure all right so i did a bunch of research throughout the years on this topic because i'm a nerd and i like to research things and then i did even more research when i started working on this episode so let's talk about some stuff that cliff isn't able to speak to There's a bunch of different ways beyond the chlorine Hercocet process to shrink-resist wool. First, let's talk about the ones that have both a subtractive part, where the scales are degraded or removed entirely, and an additive part, where something is added back to the wool to either keep it strong or to fill in any remaining space in the cuticle. There's the enzyme-based process that Cliff and I talked about. It uses a protease enzyme to degrade the scales, but then still requires an additive process of something like a silicone softener or a Hercocet analog. It would remove the issue of AOX production in the chlorination process, but it still requires that additive part. There is a process that irradiates the wool with UV radiation to degrade the scales and then treats the cuticle with a reclaimed biopolymer of sericin. Saracen, as you may recall from our silk episode, is the substance that holds the threads of a silk cocoon together. It's created naturally from a silkworm. So this method not only uses a dry process to reduce the scales on the wool, but then recycles saracen that comes as a waste from other textile manufacturer to apply to the wool, thus making it shrink-resistant. From what I could read of the study, though, it looks like it's been applied to fabric and not to loose fiber. I'm not sure if this process could be possible with loose fiber or prepared top. I also discovered a process called life fiber eco-friendly treatment that brings wool fibers from an aqueous solution of hexylmethyldiamine into another bath of a diacid chloride. And then the chemical reaction of the two creates a polyamide coating on top of the wool While this method requires very low energy usage, the polymer that the chemical reaction creates doesn't chemically bond to the surface of the wool, like in the Hercocet process, so the treatment can wear off with use. If you're not into man-made polymers in your yarn, there is that UV saracen method, or there is a lot of research going into bio-based polymers. So rather than have a polymer to coat the fibers that is made from petroleum products, which are not sustainable, there's a finite amount on this earth, They can make it from more sustainable sources. For instance, collagen, which is the major component in our tendons and ligaments, chitosan, which is made from the exoskeletons of shellfish and even polypeptides extracted from the wool protein itself. There is even research being done into using feather keratin as a coating. Some of the processes I found don't have an additive portion at all. They only have the subtractive portion. There's a process that uses plasma of either air, oxygen, or argon as the subtractive portion, which is now labeled as organic since it doesn't produce chlorine gas or chlorinated wastewater as a byproduct. If you're buying organic superwashed wool 
or shrink-resistant wool, it's probably done using this plasma process. It's labeled as chlorine-free machine washable wool. I do know that this process can be used on finished garments and on sliver, yarn, or loose fiber. The treated fiber has to be spun slightly differently and behaves differently from the untreated wool, so it might not be right for all applications. As far as I can tell, an additive process isn't required for this and in fact can make the wool more shrinkable than the untreated wool it originally started from. And the plasma is applied either at low pressure or at atmospheric pressure. The plant does have to be able to produce its own plasma on site because it degrades very quickly. But this plasma process is dry, meaning that it doesn't have the same wastewater issue as chlorination. And from what I understand, the plasma actually chemically bonds to the surface of the fiber, making it shrink-resistant forever. I found a patent from 1959 that used a modified bristle on a drum carter to strip the scales from the wool. And it seemed like it would require a lot of time and not be very consistent in descaling. So I don't think that one's viable. There's also a method called eco-wash, that is patented, but also a little bit trade secrety. Uh, I think the eco wash is probably either an enzymatic process or the plasma process. But an eco wash wool isn't coated with a resin, so the yarns are still springy and smooth, and behave a lot more like untreated yarn. I can't speak to commercial viability of any of these methods, or where you might find wool treated with these methods, but if anybody out there who works with wool knows the answers, I'd be happy to hear about it and share them in a future episode. If you want a highly technical rundown of a bunch of different types of superwash treatment and their comparative shrink resistance, I've put that in the show notes. If you're still wanting to steer clear of superwash wools, but want some washable options, you can use cellulose fibers like cotton, bamboo, and linen, or silk. I have some silk crocheted trim on a pair of leggings I made that has been through the wash like a boss for years of regular wear. Or you can look into some of the less feltable breeds of sheep. I sent an email to Deb Robson, our fiber expert from season one, since she was too busy with her teaching schedule to be able to talk with me for this episode, but she suggested that all of the down breeds are unlikely to felt. Dorset Down, Hampshire Down, Oxford Down, Shropshire, South Down, and Suffolk. The other Dorset breeds are also unlikely, Dorset Ham and Dorset, aka Dorset Pole. Next up, Deb suggested trying Clune Forest, Cheviot, and maybe Portland. Deb also reminded us always to sample. Wolves are only somewhat predictable and also can be mislabeled. I hope that this massive two-parter has been a help to you so you can make informed decisions about your wool purchases. As I mentioned in part one, there are pros and cons for every one of these methods, and I'm sure there are more methods and subtleties of methods that I didn't get to cover. But until we as consumers start asking about how and where our superwash wools are being produced, then we just don't have enough information. So I urge you to send a kindly worded email to your favorite superwash wool producer to let them know that you would like to know with which method and where their shrink-resistant wool is produced. Chances are good that they don't know, and that's okay. All we can do is try to do better and have more transparency in our wool production as we move forward. I want to thank Cliff Cox and Chargeurs again for talking to me in such candid detail about how they run their plant. You can follow me in all my making at Miriam Felton Knit Designs on Facebook and on Twitter or Instagram as Mimnits. 
Thank you so much to the patrons who keep this podcast paid for. You can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash Miriam Felton. I also stream on Twitch three times a week, so you can watch me make stuff live or with video on demand after the fact. You can find me there at twitch.tv slash mimismaking. If you can't support the podcast with money, you can rate and review it in iTunes or share the podcast with your fiber-loving friends. If this podcast helped you understand something new or gave you a deeper insight, I would really appreciate it if you could support me with rating, reviewing, or even buy me a coffee. You can do the coffee thing at ko-fi.com slash Miriam Felton. This two-parter required a lot of coffee, let me tell you. Chemistry lingo is no joke. You can follow the podcast on social media via Facebook, search for Yarn Stories Podcast with no space between yarn and stories, Twitter at Yarn Stories Pod, or Instagram at Yarn Stories Podcast. This podcast was produced in Salt Lake City, Utah, with production help from Sid Fallon. Music is by the ever-elusive Breakmaster Cylinder. I will see you again in two weeks when we have a chat with designer, author, and publisher Hunter Hammerson. Bye. Hey, babe. Hi. What you doing in the closet?